And good morning to you. I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and uh, it's great to be able to share together with you this morning as we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. So exciting to see all the young people, for the most part young people. There were a few that were a little more than young, but we're so thankful for all those who go out because they have a message to share. And what we just sang is the truth of the message that we share. So this morning we're going to combine that together as we look and continue in the series that we just began last week, Finding True Life and real love. You have an outline that will help you as you follow along this morning. We encourage you to check that out. It's in the bulletin as we uh, journey on this true life and real love message together. There is a danger today that we're losing out on what is a true life, what is truth, and we're also in this uh, sort of marginal realm of what is real, what is reality. And there's sort of a, a a watering down and a compromise and a meddling in what those things really mean. And this morning I want to dive in a little bit more on what it means to have a true life. And when we have the true life of Christ in us, there is a real love that will come from it. And we'll be looking at that as we explore it in the weeks ahead. As you see on the map here, this is where John wrote, as Matt Dome was just talking about. It's the area that we today call Turkey. It was in those days called Asia Minor. It's believed that John was writing this from the city of Ephesus and really distributing it to these communities that are around there. In Revelation, John wrote the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. There are the seven churches of the book of Revelation, and they are these churches in this region as well. So he had a great love affair, a great compassion, a great concern that the true life of Christ would be given to and lived out in these people's lives. I want that as well this morning. As we journey together, we find in this great text this first concept that we need to share what the true life of Christ really means. If we look back to last week, we began in 1 John chapter 2, and this is what John said in his first verse. He says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you. We have seen, testify, and proclaim to you. We have a message to share. So what is that message? What John is speaking to are these highlighted words that are underlined. He heard it, he saw it, he touched it, the word of life. And I like to look at it in this framework, just to sort of take a new look at from last week. Those things that we have heard, that would speak to those things, those truths that I know, that I've learned about Christ. As we'll learn in the book that Jesus is fully God, that He's also fully man, that He was a sacrifice for our sins, that He took our place, and that we can know that we have eternal life as we put our faith and trust in Him. Those things that I have seen, John says. What did he see? He saw in John 11, for example, as John wrote the Gospel of John. In John 11, he speaks to the man uh, Lazarus, who was dead for four days in a grave, and there Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He saw evidence of what Jesus does. And then touched. He experienced Christ. In John 20, 21, he had a fish fry with Jesus. He saw Jesus come and go through walls. He saw Jesus commission them to go out. He actually touched the resurrected Jesus and saw the nail-scarred hands. He experienced it. When you have a true life in Christ, when you are truly a follower of Christ, you have heard the truth, you know the truth, you have seen evidence that Jesus is working, and you are actually experiencing His work in your life. Those are the evidences of a true life in Christ. 
And when we have that, we reveal to all that we follow Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 5, it says this, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness of all. Now, John loves the metaphor of light and darkness. You see it in his gospel. You see it here in 1 John. What does it mean that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all? This is a message that we want to communicate. So what does it mean that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all? It's the standard that He's setting for who we are, who are true believers in Jesus Christ, that we have heard Him, we have seen Him, we have touched Him, He's done something to me. And so therefore I have a message to share that God is that light. Now Jesus amplifies what it means that God is light. In John 8... Again, John loves the light and dark metaphor, and he records what Christ said. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So if I have Christ in me, I've heard about him, I've seen evidence of him, I've experienced him, and therefore that's the standard of his light in my life, Jesus says, if I've got His light in my life, I'm following Jesus. My life is different. My attitude, my behavior, my inclinations, my desires, those change. Those change when you really have Jesus in you because I'm following Him. It's not just a theory out there. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just a religion. It's something that is actually impacting the way I live my life. We also see in John 3, 21, Jesus talks here. He says, but whoever does what is true, what is true, what is the true life of Christ, you come to the light. Why? So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There's something that dramatically happens to true believers in Jesus, that as we follow Christ, it becomes clearly seen that God is working in us. We're different. We live that life out differently. Our priorities are different. Our inclinations, our desires, our passions, our behaviors, our routines, our schedules, they all begin to change and it's clearly seen. The tra- challenge is there's a lot of people that claim to be believers in Jesus, claim that they will go to heaven someday, but they're indistinguishable from those that never put their faith in Jesus. And so it's easy, as John's going to show us, to talk about this, but never really follow Jesus or live it out or give evidence that it's changed me. Now, it's easy to walk that walk of talk, but not live it. Let me demonstrate it with a little video here to help us to kind of fine-tune what John now wants to continue to look at. Take a look at this. I am a furniture maker. I guess you could say I've been a furniture maker all my life. I was born into a furniture making family. My father was a furniture maker. His father was a furniture maker. It's in my blood. (laughs) 
you say you love most about being a furniture maker? <laughs> what don't I love? Um, the smell, that aroma. When you when you enter the workshop of walnut and heart pine and oak, it's the smell. It's the smell of potential. You know, like I like to just take a piece of wood and 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 work with it and just dream. You know, what's this? What's this going to be? You know, who is this table? Or this desk or this chair going to belong to someday? And, you know, and then there's, there's also the um, the community part. Um, I love that. You know, I, I often get together with other furniture makers and talk about design, and you know, swap furniture making stories. <laughs> you know, and talk about the latest article in the furniture making magazine that we read. Um, yeah, I, I, I love that. I mean, it's, I know, I know, it's, it sounds dorky, but, uh, you know, that's, that's who I am. <laughs> what would you say is your very favorite, you know, out of everything that you've done, what is your favorite piece mm. of, of furniture? Mm. 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 Um, I'm sorry? Um, I said, uh, you know, out of everything that you've made, what's your favorite piece of furniture? Well, I, I actually have never made a, a piece of furniture. What? Uh, like, you've never made anything? A chair or a table or, you know... Mm. Ashtray? No. How long did you say you've been doing this? Oh, 18 years. Okay, so in 18 years, you're telling me you've never made a single piece of furniture? Oh, look, I mean, furniture making is, is so much more than just producing things. Okay, it's, it's, it's a way of life. This is this is my identity. This is what I grew up on. I mean, this is what I've invested in. It's what I it's what I think about. It's what I dream about. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. It's just it seems like if you're going to call yourself a furniture maker, that you maybe should have made a piece of furniture. <laughs> well, I didn't know we had a an expert in furniture making here. I don't even, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually, I actually feel kind of sorry for you right now. Why? Yeah, you're so, you're 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 so narrow-minded. Uh, furniture making, furniture making is life. Okay, and and there's not anyone that I know, there's not a single person I know, who is more committed, who's more dedicated to the art, to the ideas of furniture making than I am. And I am proud of what I do. 
I will tell the world. Nay, I will shout to the world. I am a furniture maker. I don't feel like I need to explain that. <laughs> But there's a high risk that people say things that aren't true. You confront them on it, and they're personally offended because of our narrow-minded, intolerant, judgmental attitude. You know what John's burdened about? That there are people that love to hang out with Christians, love to talk with other Christians, Love the smell of other Christians. Maybe we wear, wear more deodorant. I don't know. We think it's more holy. Love to sit in a room like this and love to listen to worship music. Love to hear the choir sing. You can hear the violins play in a moment. Come and get a free concert and don't give anything any offering. You just love the phenomenon, the experience, the camaraderie, the closeness. Occasionally learn something from the old guy up here, but you're really not a Christian. You've never made the full-on commitment, and the life that you live does not follow Jesus. And John wants to confront us on that. You can smell wood and love that smell and hang out in a carpenter shop, but if you never make a piece of furniture, you cannot call yourself. A furniture maker any more than those who go to church can call, call themselves Christians simply because they love to hang out with other believers. John is burdened that we truly go to the life of Christ and we have that true life and that is a message we communicate and then he confronts the believers in Ephesus. He confronts you and me with this. We need to be honest and admit that we have sinful problems. That, that's the problem. We don't admit the problem we have, so we don't really ever go to the solution that is there. And so John confronts them. And notice these three verses that are here in the Bible that you hopefully have in your hand or look on the screen. In verses 6, 8, and 10, John repeats three phrases. If we say that we have fellowship, if we say we have no sin, if we say that we have not sinned, He's putting them on the spot, just like that interviewer or the furniture maker. You say these things, but we're not sure you really do these things. And so let me break that down. Here, here is the honesty that the world needs, that you and I need, and that those who love to hang out with Christians but aren't committed to Christ, that they need to come to grips with as well. Let's break it down. Verse 6, for example. There are those who walk in darkness. And this, this phrase, I think my sin does not matter, sort of captures what John says in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, I'm okay with God. I, I hang out with Christians. I go to church. I sit in a worship center. I listen to worship music. If we say we have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. There are those who say they're right with God, but they're not. And so they're confronted, walking in darkness. One example. I was talking to a uh, Christian psychologist, 
And it was in concert with a marriage that I was going to perform, a wedding ceremony. And talking about the couple who was going to come up and the values and the things that we love to communicate in the wedding as well as what we want in a marriage. And the Christian psychologist and I would begin to talk about things like uh, living together before you get married. And the Christian psychologist said to me that she thought it was okay if couples live together before they get married. And she said, in fact, I think it's okay because I'm doing it right now. I'm living with the man that I hope to someday marry. I said, well, wait a second, you, you're a Christian? Yes. We think it's important for the sake of a successful marriage that you live together beforehand so you can sort of try it out. Make sure it's going to work. You wouldn't buy a car without driving it, would you? Well, why would you want to marry someone you don't live with first to see how well it works out? And this is a born, she told me, a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. To me, that's someone, and I don't want to cast dispersions or judgment, but who lives in darkness, who says, I have fellowship with the Father, but my lifestyle betrays that commitment because they don't see the wrong that they're doing. I think my sin does not matter. If you think your sin does not matter, you don't need a Savior. And that denial of that truth is eternally damaging. The second thing in verse 8, John says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. The word deception or deceiving is that wonderful word that I referred to, if you've heard me for some time, planeo, which we get our English word planet, that means you orbit around something. Deception is where I'm orbiting around something. Looks like I'm going somewhere. Looks like I am in a direction that is good, but I'm orbiting around the wrong thing. That's deception. But it feels right, but it's actually around the wrong thing. My belief system is in the wrong thing. And John is speaking to us, and I would put it my now from my darkness to my deception, I rationalize and redefine my sin. That's damaging as well. That's an inability to have truth and real love. Example. A couple came to me one time in another city, in another place, another time far away from here. And they said, we're having trouble in our marriage could you meet with us and could we talk about this? And I said, well, I'd be happy to do that. So we met. And we sat there and this man was a uh, teacher of one of our adult classes. And uh, they were both in various leadership kind of roles. But they weren't feeling close to each other as a husband and wife. And so they wanted to find out why. So we sat there in our living room and we talked about this, that, and the other thing and sort of explored and really couldn't put our fingers on anything. Just, there was just a lack of closeness and connection in their marriage. Then after we had talked for some time now, the husband said, there is one thing, I don't know whether it's important or not. I said, well, what is that? He says, I have a bunch of pornographic magazines in the closet in our bedroom that I look at pretty regularly. And it's just, in, for me, it's just my own little private way of... Uh, having intimacy. And he says, do you think that matters to our marriage? I said, well, yeah, I think there might be a problem there. I think so. 
Because you, and I would put it now in the parlance of this passage, and I didn't say this to him, but he's orbiting around the wrong thing. His life claiming to be a believer in Jesus is not orbiting around Jesus and his commands and his truth. It's orbiting around his own physical desires and pleasures and priorities that are not God's, not for anyone, single or married. And that to me is a deceived mind who thinks that they can play games with God in that sinful world of pornography and then on church Sundays come and look like I'm teaching a class, I know God's Word, I'm a committed Christian. You can't have it both ways. You're either orbiting around Jesus and the commitment of who He is and His holiness or you're orbiting around your own selfish desires. But there are people who deceive themselves with selfish, sinful, lustful things and they think it doesn't damage their relationship with God and John's calling them out. If you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourselves. Can you do that and say you have no sin? That's utter deception and we're redefining what sin is as well. And the third area of calling them out is this. It's a matter of denial, living in denial. From darkness to deception, now to denial, we need to admit honestly our problem. There are those who stubbornly refuse to admit that they have sin and they say they're okay. They, they stubbornly refuse to admit the obvious to everyone else. If we say, verse 10, that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. No one can claim I'm okay with God. No one can claim that. And if I've got sin, then I've got to do something about it. But no one can live in total denial. Perhaps the most ex uh, really over-the-top examples, because I fear that I lose many who think, well, I don't do those things. But there are three big deniers in the world today. There are those who are addicts, be it alcohol, drugs, pornography, and many other things. Addicts are big-time deniers. You try to confront them on that, and no, I, I could stop any time I want. Second category of big-time deniers are abusers or slash angry people. I don't abuse. I just have, an, a, I have this authority that I need to exercise, and I want to bring discipline into the home. In point of fact, they're probably big-time abusers, and they abuse their authority. And the third category of big-time deniers are adulterers. I had a man that was confronted by his wife of committing adultery with another woman in our church from another place a long time ago, who I sat in my, who I sat in my office and I asked him, how are you committing adultery with this woman in our church? And he sat there and repeatedly, repeatedly and boldly denied it. And it wakened my eyes to how good, how good a liar adulterer people are. They lie so easily. And so I know that there's a reality that those are three classes of a deniers and there are others. There are people who are generally good people. They are church-going people. They, they claim to love the Lord people and they're generally good to hang out with and you have a good connection with them. But they've never admitted that I've got a sin problem that needs to be addressed. And they think they're okay and God says, well, you're not you're not okay. If you've not addressed the sin problem, you're not okay. 
So whether you're in darkness or in deception or in denial, the fact of the matter, John says he's calling us out on those who say that we have fellowship with the Father. They say that we have no sin. Well, John says, no, you, you can't play that game if you've never done something about sin. So then he goes to this in verses 7 and 9. If I admit that I've got a sin problem, then I've got a Savior solution. And that is that I trust in the power of Christ because He changes us. He really does change us. So a true believer follows Jesus, even though we have our occasionally issues, but we're still following Jesus. He's changing me. I am no longer the selfish, narcissistic person who has an anger problem. I have overcome those things and God is changing me. So I no longer act out in those ways. I admit them. I overcome them. And so he says this, trust in the sacrifice of Christ and the fellowship of his followers. Notice what he says in verse 7. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Jesus wants to come and cleanse us. He doesn't want us to be a better sinner. He wants to transform us into a righteous saint. He's not asking for us to sort of work harder at being a follower of Jesus. He simply wants to allow Christ to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and that is to cleanse us from all sin, from darkness, from deception, and from denial. Cleanse it. Get it right. And notice what happens when, when there's, there's this beautiful connection here. When he cleanses us from all sin, it also affects my fellowship with people around me. We have fellowship with one another as the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. As I get connected with God and holiness and let Jesus do for me what I can't do for myself, it changes my relationships. So those of us who follow Jesus, there should be an ongoing improvement in our relationships with people. And it should be noticeable. It should be obvious. Not only that, but we confess our sins. To allow Jesus to cleanse me, it comes through this confession process. As 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous. He will be faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. There's not like a bunch of areas that God says, those things I can't, can't overlook. You've been doing that too long. You're too uh, established in your ways. You're too much in denial about the, I simply cannot let those go. But I'll take care of these. He says, I, I want to do it all. I want a complete overhaul. Again, I, I don't want a better sinner. I want a brand new saint, God says, that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And what does it mean to confess? Confess is this wonderful Greek word, homo legeo. Homo meaning the same, and legeo meaning to say. And so when I confess my sins, I say the same thing about that sin that God says. If I do a selfish thing and I say a, a, a bad thing uh, to my family, maybe it's an anger or frustration and it's rude and it's selfish, I better say the same thing about that that God says. And what God says is, Dave, that was wrong. I wish you hadn't done it. You should never do it again. And if you want me to remove it from you, you just tell me I'm sorry, God, and I want to make it right. And God says, okay. It's right. Thank you. Let's make it right. You, you don't continue to do it. You say the same thing that God says 
and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. To kind of help with that, we've put together a uh, screensaver for your phone, your iPad, your whatever device you like to be on. If you go to CalvaryLife.org slash series, you can put that on your phone and every day as you wake up and you push the little button and up pops the first screen, it can be that gentle reminder from God that I am imperfect, He is perfect, and He wants to bring the cleansing work of Jesus into my life today. And I start my day right with God. So here's a way to gently remind us not to create irritation in our lives. And then, as I know the true life of Christ, I admit that I've got a sin problem, and Jesus can cleanse me of all sin through my confession. Now I'm on the track to living out that true life in Christ. Now, when I live out the true life in Christ, there are going to be bumps in the road. And so John then writes to us 1 John 1, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. And that is that I need to have an ongoing, growing relationship with Jesus. It's not something you sort of begin and just sort of slide. You don't just hang around the wood pile. You actually begin to build furniture. You actually begin to exercise this faith. It begins to transform marriages and relationships. You become a better employee, a better boss, a better teacher, a better student. You suddenly are rising to another level of discipline and holiness, and it's being reflected in all that I do and say. But there will be those days when it just doesn't go very well. So I go to the Lord, and this is one of the first things that 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, highlighting the ones underlined. If anyone sins, so we will sin. That's a given. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Just stopping there. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I love this word advocate. Advocate is the Greek word parakletos. Para, like coming alongside like a paramedic or a paralegal. Kletos, to call, to counsel. And so what he is saying is that Jesus is our defense attorney to plead our case. You know, I was on a... Uh, uh, I had to go to jury duty a few weeks ago. So I had to sit there in this jury panel. They had the first 199 were named, and I was like 156. And so I sat there for two days in the courtroom. And there was the district attorney and the defense attorney, and there was this young man, like a 35-year-old young man, uh, nice-looking young guy. And he is there on uh, 12 counts of child molestation. He didn't look like the uh, typical, what you would think of, but there he was. And so the question was, is this man guilty or innocent? Obviously, there was enough to bring him to the courtroom. Well, I didn't get on the jury, but I sat there and listened for two straight full days as they inquired of every juror and explained some of the problems that this man has. After the jury was over in about two weeks, I looked it up, and lo and behold, he was found guilty. And the thing that strikes me about that is here is a defense attorney doing what his job is, probably being paid well to do it. And that's just their job. I get it. It's a legal system. But a defense attorney in the world today goes into the courtroom and says that my defendant is innocent or not guilty, and I want to prove that to you today. In this case, this defense attorney said my defendant is not guilty, but the jury says guilty. 
Compare that with a defense attorney called Jesus Christ, our advocate, my parakletos, sort of my paralegal, if you will. When I sin, Jesus, my defense attorney, he comes to my side and he goes to the Father in heaven. And so I just sinned. I just did something. I thought something. I said something I shouldn't have said. And we have those moments when we just look back and say, what was I thinking? That was crazy wrong. And Jesus goes to the Father and says, Father, David is guilty. He didn't plead me not guilty. He says, he is guilty. But Father, I want to make him innocent. And that's what you and I have. Someone who will make us innocent. That's our advocate. So on the journey of life, as I confess them, he continues to make me innocent. That's, that's incredible. And the thing about Jesus, it's all pro bono. I never have to pay him. I don't put my offering in the basket as sort of a payment to the defense attorney. It's simply a worship act. And then secondly, we reach out to others. Once that change is going on, we begin to reach out to others because He is the propitiation or satisfaction, I should say, for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He wants to go out and give this message to others. And so as I live a true life of Christ, I come with a message of what the light of life, light of Christ does in my life. As a follower of His, I admit my sins, I confess my sins, the blood of Jesus forgives me of my sins, basic stuff to be a Christian, so that I then live it out, but have a person who can walk with me and help me through those rough patches as He pleads my case with the Holy God in heaven. That's who we have. 